The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Munchkin edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion. I am joined, as ever, by Kathy O'Neill, the author of Weapons of Math Destruction. Hi. And Slate Moneybox columnist Jordan Weissman. Hello, glad to be here. And this week's topics were pretty easy and obvious for us because this was the week when Donald Trump basically rolled out his entire economic team, or at least the most important bits of it. Specifically, the, the Commerce Secretary, the finance minister, and, um, oh, yeah, and he wound up doing exactly what he said he would do on the um, campaign trail wait, wait, wait. And, and, start, and, and saved a bunch of jobs in Indiana. We're going to talk about all of this. Wait, Felix, you just referred to our, the Treasury Secretary as the finance minister. How Euro can you get right now? <laughs> he is the finance minister. <laughs> I know, but we're not sitting in the middle of Brussels right now. We're in America. This is Trump America. country. We're in Trump country. He's the <laughs> Treasury Secretary. So, this. okay, so let's let's start with um, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Mr. Stephen <laughs> Mnuchin. <laughs> Um, or whatever it is that you guys call him over here. So, yeah, the the joke is that, uh, like, local newscasters were trying to pronounce his name, and there was just a, a super reel of them mispronouncing it. And the best one by far was Stephen Munchkin. <laughs> just... and, once, and once you hear the Munchkin you thing, go back. It, yeah. it's really hard to unhear it. It is, just... te- it is I, I went on various radio and TV shows to talk about this guy, and broadcasters care about how things are pronounced. And I can tell you that officially, the pronunciation is not Mnuchin, it's Mnuchin. Like Minutia. Mm. The as, as a wonderful email to Kai Risdell once put it, the CH is soft as in champagne or charlatan. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> On which note? <laughs> um, so... Yeah, this guy is a second-generation Google partner, uh, Google partner, G- Goldman Sachs partner. His dad was a Goldman Sachs partner. Um, he grew up arguably even richer and more privileged than Donald Trump. Um, he did the whole Yale and Skull and Bones thing. He went to Goldman Sachs in his father's footsteps. He then um, he rose to become a partner and was in charge of government bond markets and mortgage bond markets. He left Goldman Sachs and became basically a financier, you know, one of those rich people. He had a hedge fund at one point called June Capital, which was named after the dunes outside his home in the Hamptons. Yep. Um, and um, he's probably, as far as the confirmation hearings are concerned, um, most well known for having bought this bank called IndyMac, which was a complete um, I believe the technical term is shit show, um, renaming it One West and evicting tens of thousands of people and making lots of money in the process and getting the FDIC to pay for it. Yes. Is that more or less Stephen Munchkin? Uh, no, sorry, Mnuchin. <laughs> uh, I think you've got uh, most of uh, Munchkin's biography down there. Some other key details. I mean, this is this guy is th- in thick with the big players in finance. I mean, he opened his hedge funds with George Soros. He went into the uh, IndyMac deal. He worked for... Like Stanley Druckenmiller. Yeah, the IndyMac yeah. deal he did with Soros and Paul and John Paulson, uh, also a, a well-known hedge funder who made a lot of money off of the housing collapse. I mean, he he is Wall Street to the core. And while this is obviously 
in direct contravention of all of Donald Trump's campaign promises. And in fact, one of the very last ads in his campaign was wheeling out photographs of George Soros and Lloyd Blankfein from Goldman Sachs and saying, you know, these are the people we hate and vote for Soros because we hate them. And then he goes and hires like, you know, the ultimate Soros and Blankfein person as his treasury secretary. It's kind of hilarious. But by the same token, um, if you opposed what Trump was standing for in the campaign, then you should probably like Stephen Mnuchin, right? Uh, um, so I think so. No, I'd be like I'm, I'm going to jump in here yeah, because I mean I it. feel like Trump, you know, he never says anything consistently, right? But we, I do think that he had a bunch of people convinced that he was going to do things differently. Um, at the very least, at the very least, he was going to be like. I'm I'm not going to be business as usual. And yet he's he's he brought someone in from Goldman Sachs. Now, I'm not saying Munchkin is exactly like every other treasury secretary. There's he's not. He's actually worse. <laughs> but but like that one way that that you could have I was I was actually thinking he would do something different. I thought he was going to bring in somebody random with no experience in finance at all. Well, he did. He has brought in someone random with no experience in government. So at least that is and in line with yeah. Yeah. no, no. But Munchkin, sorry, Mnuchin. We have to call, stop calling him Munchkin. Um, Mnuchin has no government experience. Did Hank Paulson? I can't remember. Did he have any? Before? No, yeah. Hank Paulson didn't. But this is the thing about Goldman Sachs: yeah. is that you don't become a partner at Goldman Sachs without being very good at hiring very talented and brilliant people who are often smarter than you are and giving them the ability to do their work with great success and professionalism. And um, that's the way that Robert Rubin ran Treasury when, you know, the, the, the first Goldman, the big Goldman guy to run Treasury. That's the way that Hank Paulson ran Treasury, another Goldman guy. And I suspect that's the way that Mnuchin is going to run Treasury as well is, you know, basically the same way that they ran things at Goldman Sachs, which is hiring smart people. Well, and getting so, okay, so I'm, I'm not going to disagree with you. I think he is probably pretty good at like that cultural concept of what mean what smart means and what smart looks like. And but that's exactly what Trump was trying to say. Yeah. I'm I'm like I don't want to be like defending Trump here <laughs> or uh, like or defending the idea that we thought Trump was going to follow through on his promises. But this idea that exactly that culture of like the smart guy deserves to be a billionaire. Um that is not what Trump ran. No, no, no. We, we can. I think we can agree, and I don't think it's worth dwelling too much on mm-hmm. the fact that this is not in line with the Trump campaign at all. I, right. I okay. think the more interesting question is: Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? I think, in terms of the sort of technocratic Davos man type thing, like I don't think he's that far from. Can okay? Here's a quick quiz. Kathy O'Neill. Yeah. I, I know that Jordan can do this. Can you? Can you name the current Treasury Secretary? Uh, Treasury Secretary, what's his name? Yes, I could imagine his name. Uh, Lou. <laughs> Lou. Yeah, yes. Jack Lou. Come on. Jack Lou. Uh, no, it's not easy because he's pretty much invisible. He doesn't do yeah. anything. Well, no, he, 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 he does, he does do a, lot a lot of, of things. He just doesn't do things in public. He's very quiet. So, and yeah, right. my, And he also came from a big investment bank. He was at Citigroup. And... Um, Although often Treasury Secretary is more of a front man. Lou is a little bit unusual yeah. in that respect that he's behind the scenes. So my my gut feeling about Mnuchin is that he's going to be very much in line with the Jack Lou Treasury. So he's going to 
it's going to be like a professional organization. He's going to be low profile. He's going to let Trump keep all of the limelight. Trump is going to be making the headlines. Trump is going to be doing the tweeting. And he's going to be making the trains run on time in the background. So I have a few different points. One thing I think we need to just mention as background key information is that um, Mnuchin was also Trump's uh, chief fundraiser. That's the thing you have to understand. He was what, he was the guy who showed up on the campaign to help raise money when it's not clear anybody else would. He knew Trump from back in the day, did business with him, apparently knew him socially, talked to him a little bit before the campaign, gave him some input on his tax plan. Um, but that that's why this guy was the pick. Um, and also beyond that, why people suspected he was going to be the pick from back in the summer. They, they were uh, Donors were hearing back in, I think, July, that if they gave money to Trump, Mnuchin would probably be the Treasury Secretary. So this was a little bit of a promise dangled. Our, I don't know if it was like quid pro quo that way, but they were hearing, yes, this is going to be your guy. So he was sort of a promise dangled out, I think, to Wall Street in a way. So, um, I mean, my question, going back to Felix's question, is, is it a good thing? Like, what do we want a Treasury Secretary to do? For one, you want a guy who can give basic advice to the president on things like how the markets work, right? Especially when the guy's Donald Trump. And so like in that respect, at least we know Mnuchin understands how things like bond markets function. Like he has he, a he deep... Un- he, un- he knows what a risk-free rate is and he understands how that relates to the treasury bond market. And honestly, like you'd think that would be table stakes, it, but... With this administration, in, in any it wasn't. government, but in this administration, it's yeah. not. So, like fundamentally, he's going to fulfill that part of it. But right. then also, That's a, tre- a, point. a treasury secretary has limited direct power as a regulator, but he has a ton of influence in telling the president who to pick as the regulators. And so, in that respect, I think we can expect Mnuchin as a guy who, you know, did kind of sketchily foreclose on tens of thousands of people while he ran a bank to have a light regulatory touch. And so right. he's not a great signal to like consumers, for instance. And that brings <laughs> up my like my thing, which is like, yeah. I, I'm not somebody who follows these kinds of things that closely. But there was a moment in the recent past when the Treasury Secretary had an enormous amount of influence. And that was right after the financial crisis yes. uh, with Geithner. And he did all sorts of things that as far as I can tell, Mnuchin would do exactly the same well, way. I mean, to be fair, the guy who did the most, the Treasury Secretary who did the most important things during the financial crisis was Paulson. Yeah. And then Geithner was a complete continuation of Paulson. There was really no difference there. And I think you're absolutely right. If you look at the long history of um, Treasury Secretaries going back, you know, from well before. Co- Paulson, there hasn't really been a sort of democratic mold and a Republican mold. This hasn't been a, p- a very political job, and I and Mnuchin has given much more money to uh, Democrats than he ever had to Republicans before Trump came along. And so I feel that in that respect, he is going to be exactly the kind of high technocratic, Wall Street friendly Treasury Secretary which both Democrats and Republicans I, have had see, all along. I, I I disagree on that front because. We are not in the financial crisis anymore. We're in a period where we're figuring out what financial regulations are going to look like in the future. And the Obama era has seen a a careful ratcheting up of the amount of regulation on Wall Street. Some people don't think it's gone far enough, but it is still a lot more than there was previously. And what many people are expecting now, I think rightfully, is that Mnuchin is going to ratchet that down and you're going to see an unwinding of... Exactly like Larry Summers did when he was Treasury Secretary under Clinton. So we think the Volcker rule, for example, is going to be... Volcker rule will probably be weakened. I think most of Dodd-Frank will stay. I think that... But it's how it's enforced. the, The really interesting thing is what he's going to do with Fannie and Freddie. No one really knows, but that's much more in play now than it ever has been during the Obama administration. And if you want to go back and listen to our fascinating conversation um, with Bethany McLean about 
Fanny and Freddie, you should totally do that because that all of those questions are now very much live. Yeah. Fundamentally, also, you know, he he wasn't attached. I mean, his name was not attached to a lot of uh, Trump's policies during the campaign, whereas some other economic advisors were very prominent. It's come out now since his pick that he apparently was deeply interested in the tax plan. Um, and so that's apparently where his heart is. And that he he talks about wanting to cut the corporate rate to fifteen percent. He repeats that over and over. Again. We're going to talk about that yeah. one in the carrier. Oh that yeah, part yeah. Of he, he he talks about you know I mean if you think his heart and soul is really in this tax plan, that means he's going to be pushing Trump hard on it. So that and that's and that's important because the Treasury Secretary, you know, for all that we love talking about the nexus of Treasury and Wall Street, which is an important nexus, the really important thing that the Treasury Secretary does is. He's the person in charge of fiscal policy. He's the person in charge of raising taxes and borrowing money and that kind of stuff. And well, so if he telling would, them to raise taxes. <laughs> you know, Congress raises taxes, but right. he is the person in charge of telling the president how he thinks that the ta- you know, where taxes should so go. So yes, I think you're right that he is going to want to cut taxes. That's going to be his priority. And he'll leave a lot of the nuts and bolts of Treasury to the technocrats and the employees. And I think that's good because honestly, the alternative here was that we'd get some crazy bomb thrower who like wants to default on the national debt and you know there were some the debt ceiling and there, stuff there like were that. some crazy bomb i'll agree with you that it's not the worst case scenario but i do feel like we're getting it a set up for a new bubble can, can i just and that's not can good. i just quickly mention the one worst case scenario who did get floated during this whole thing at one point and i think almost it was just to scare the shit out of liberals Trump was interviewing um, John Allison from BB&T Bank, the former CEO, who literally he has written. He used to be the head of Cato, which is a libertarian think tank. He's written about how he wants to go to the gold standard, get rid of the FDIC, get rid of the Fed and just have like free banking 19th century style with guns. Yeah. And there was like (laughs) there was seriously a moment where every left wing like lefty wonk was just like shivering at the thought that this was going to be the Treasury secretary. So so Stephen Mnuchin, he's better than John Allison. That's that's what we can say about him. This episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Wondery, which is a podcast company, and it makes a podcast called The Best One Yet, and it is a daily podcast hosted by Nick and Jack, who serve up three of the most interesting business news stories every day, and why you need to know them in just 20 minutes. Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that saved Abercrombie or which real tech acquisition is like Game of Thrones or the one financial equation that can finally solve climate change? That's the kind of stuff you find on The Best One Yet. So be in the know this year by starting your morning with The Best One Yet every weekday. Follow The Best One Yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts, with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more. Wondery means business. And Kathy. Yeah. Since we're talking about taxes. Yeah. Tell me what happened in Indiana. Well, so we've actually talked about this before. Uh, this this company called Carrier is is basically moving it, planning to move its its uh, jobs to Mexico in order to save a bunch of money. Um, and what happened was basically it was a part of of Trump's campaign promise that he was going to keep Carrier um, specifically and jobs in general from moving to Mexico. So what he did was he made it very very bad deal uh, with Carrier Company um, with lots of tax breaks to keep them to, from moving eight hundred jobs to Mexico. They're still moving like twelve hundred jobs to Mexico though, I believe. Yes. 
So my my I mean this is obviously insane. You don't want the president trying to negotiate 800 jobs because as I you know the the, the economy creates more than 2 million jobs a month and destroys more than 2 million do- jobs a month and you can't let if you're worried about 800 jobs here and there you're you're just going to miss the forest for the trees. I've got some numbers just to back you up <laughs> on how stupid this is. Um, just in terms of manufacturing jobs, which is w- what this stuff is, air conditioning and um, stuff. Um, there In the United States as a whole, there's been 5 million manufacturing jobs lost since 2000, which is a 30% of manufacturing jobs. And in Indiana, um, there have been 150,000 since 2000, which is 20% of Indiana's manufacturing jobs. So Compare 150,000 jobs lost to 800 jobs not quite lost. Um, it's not It's and, not a good number. And also, this is the other thing which always drove me up the wall when Trump was campaigning, especially when he started talking about NAFTA, is that he has this model, and I'm quite sure he genuinely does have this model in his, in his mind, that you have a factory which makes widgets and then those that factory employs people and then so the widgets are made in United States. And then the owners of the factory go, We can pay the we can pay people less in Mexico, so we're gonna move the factory to Mexico and then the widgets will be made in Mexico and you know, and that means that the jobs move from the United States to Mexico. It's a very simple model and it is deeply, deeply false. Because the whole point of NAFTA is that what it has done is created these incredibly complex transnational supply chains, which cross Mexico, Canada, and the United States. If you buy an air conditioner with a carrier plate on it, you know, it might have its final assembly in Indiana, it might have its final assembly in Mexico, but the bits in that, the bits and pieces of that air conditioner will come from all over the world. The supply chain, especially in North America, will be incredibly complex. And you can't just point to one place and say, that is where the air conditioners come from. I agree That's- with you. But having said that, like there is something relatively simple here, which is that the people in Indiana get paid $20 an hour and the equivalent people, when they move the jobs to Mexico, get paid $6 an hour. And that math is actually pretty pretty simple and straightforward. I think, it's, I think it's $11 an hour. <laughs> uh, well, it, maybe I read a different source. <laughs> it's, it's, but it's, I wanted yeah. to go back to this idea of what Trump's model is because yeah. I, as I, I think about models a lot, I think his model is, has nothing to do with, with, with manufacturing at all. I think his model is what can I have a press conference about or a exactly. rally around? Yeah. So this is, this is post-truth politics. And what we have is a treasury secretary who will cut a lot of taxes and make a lot of rich people rich and or make a lot of rich people even richer. And we have a populace who voted for Trump, who on the face of it should be incredibly unhappy about having like this Goldman guy in Treasury because this is everything they, they didn't want. And what you do in order to placate them is feed them a diet of tweets about saving jobs at carrier and, you know, wanting to but, you know, re- remove citizenship from people who burn the flag. And so, you know, what you can do is by keeping the headlines coming, as so long as you can generate a whole bunch of headlines about, I saved 800 jobs, the fact that in reality you're making things worse rather than better in a post-truth society where people don't believe what they read in the media might actually work. So I, I want to uh, steer us back to the money and away from the politics and talk a little bit about the model. Like, you know, I do think... Um, when you say that Trump's wrong about what a manufacturing supply chain is, you're 
I think you're like 80 percent correct. It like NAFTA really did create this kind of North American supply chain where pieces of cars and of air conditioners come up and down from Canada and Mexico and in the U.S. and things that final assemblies done, you know, wherever it happens to be most efficient. But, you know, to some extent, NAFTA has facilitated the overall shift of manufacturing to Mexico to some degree. You know, there is a larger part of the supply chain there than probably would have been without without NAFTA. Um, and in some ways, that may have helped preserve some American jobs because it allowed us to keep making things relatively efficiently here in the States, part, at least do part and, and of the process. And here in North America, yeah. rather than just moving it all, all the way to China. China. Yeah. Exactly. But uh, there is, I mean, I don't think it's totally crazy to think about ways that we could preserve more of the manufacturing supply chain in in here in this country. I think that's I think that is something important to analyze. The question is whether or not Trump is the one who is actually capable of doing that. And beyond that, um, if something like this with Carrier is actually uh, helpful in any way, and I think it, in a lot of ways it isn't because it creates this bizarre incentive now where if you're a company and you're thinking about moving jobs to Mexico, maybe you make a little bit of noise about it and Trump will show up and give you some incentives to stick around. I mean, you know, carriers getting lots of money from the state of Indiana or but, $7 million from the state I mean, of Indiana. To, but, to be fair, like this is a game which companies have been playing for exactly. decades. This is not new with Trump. But you Trump know, is now because, playing because, it himself. But because different states have had huge tax incentives for various manufacturing employers um, for years now. You know, there's been this game where, like, all the, everyone moves to North Carolina because there's tax tax incentives there. Everyone moves to Texas or whatever. And, you know, this is just an extension of that game. Um, the one thing I will say, which is hugely important, is that the manufacturing industry of the United States is bigger and stronger now than it has ever been at any point in history. Like this idea that there's no manufacturing done in the United States is completely false or that there's less manufacturing done in the United States is completely false. What is true is there are fewer manufacturing jobs just because manufacturing is so much more efficient now than it used to be. And that's not a question of free trade or NAFTA or lower wages. That's just a question of automation and productivity enhancements. Well, that's a, some of that's also offshoring too. I mean, so you're talking what you're talking about is value added, right? We measure the amount of manufacturing done in the country by what's called the value add and just keep that concept in your head and part of the value add is just like how much how much profit do you, or like how much do you add to the finished product right and one way you can do that is just by making fancier and more expensive goods but another way you can increase that is by using cheaper inputs so one way that the u.s has increased its value add this thing that says we make more than we ever did is by importing cheaper chinese inputs so i mean it's it's tricky like the i think saying and to that to that point and to the other point that you were making about like how can we keep manufacturing jobs while still be <clears throat> being a healthy economy this is this would be a very very extreme concept yeah but i saw this uh statistic which i wanted to share that if we made if we just said we're going to stop international trade altogether yeah um we could do that, and we keep a lot of jobs, but our purchasing power would go way down. Yes. In particular, um, the um, the wealthiest consumers would lose twenty eight percent of their purchasing power. The bo- people at the bottom tenth per, um, would actually lose sixty three percent of their purchasing power. In other words, poor people would not be able to buy stuff with the wages that they or, sometimes uh, make. There's, like it's the, the reverse other, Walmart the, effect. The other word for your purchasing power goes way down, which is a more common word, is inflation. Yeah. Effectively, what you would have is massive price inflation that, you know, your your bottle of shampoo or whatever it is that, you know, or your air conditioner, which costs $500 now, would suddenly cost $1,500. So I want to go back to um, this, this idea of, like, what Trump is actually going to do. Yeah. Um, because... 
from all I heard, uh, and it is not a lot of information yet, um, but everybody who he's surrounded himself with is very much into lowering corporate tax rates and lowering regulation in general. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't look at all like he's going to raise tariffs and and cut off international trade. It looks like he's going to, in fact, incentivize people to move to Mexico faster. Which is the perfect segue (laughs) into into our next segment. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at applecard.com. Jordan. Yeah. These these international tariffs and whatnot, there is this random job. And I mean, okay, here's, here's another quiz. Kathy? Oh, God. Can you tell me who the Commerce Secretary is? The Commerce Secretary. Yeah. I do not know. Interestingly. Penny the, Pritzker. Penny Pritzker is another one of those random billionaires. It's not just Donald Trump who, yeah. who appoints um, billionaire campaign donors to his cabinet. But to be fair. Obama like, does too. I learned what com- what a Commerce like what the Commerce Department was this week. Like, <laughs> so, okay, so yeah, I, re- I wrote an article about this this week because I've, so Donald Trump announced he was picking Wilbur Ross, who is this private equity tycoon, um, to be his Commerce Secretary. And typically no one gives a shit about the the Commerce Department. Just like nobody does. You, you couldn't name who Penny Pritzker was. Yeah. I don't blame you. That's That was, for all intents and purposes, useless knowledge that I've had sitting in my head for a while. Um but in this administration, I'm pretty sure that the Commerce Secretary, Wilbur Ross, is going to be one of the most important economic advisors. Um, during the campaign, he was basically one of Trump's top two economic surrogates, him and uh, Peter Navarro from uh, University of California, Irvine. Um, they they are the guys responsible for his infrastructure plan for, quote, the score where they explained Trumponomics, um, all defending his tax plan. W- Ross has Trump's ear and he's defended a lot of Trump's stances on trade. He's but. He he's he's an interesting guy because he in private equity got this reputation as a dude who would invest in these dying heavy industries like steel. And even though he'd cut a lot of jobs in the process, he would also revive the companies and sell them and, and make them function again. Right. Um, and he did it in you know, he did it in textiles, denim plants, things like that. And in the process, he would sometimes offshore jobs, um, but while also keeping an American plant running. And so, you know, in the steel industry, he benefited from tariffs. In textiles, he offshored jobs and benefited from globalization and trade. So this is a guy who actually does have a fairly nuanced understanding of how trade works. At the same time, is saying we are using, we are willing to use things like tariffs as a negotiating tool to try and increase U.S. exports to bring down other kinds of barriers. So on trade, it, he's he's not an obvious classic straight up protectionist trade warrior. I think there's some nuance there. My my bigger concern with Wilbur Ross is his economics thinking is just like awful. <laughs> Everything but, but, else, but yeah. So but, so yeah. Like, and and you're what you're worried about is not Wilbur Ross qua commerce secretary. It's Wilbur Ross qua economic advisor. Exactly. Yeah. Can, I'm sorry. Like, can we just back up? What does a commerce? What does the commerce oh, so department I'll talk do? To, so the commerce department does a lot. I mean, like. The census is at the Commerce Department. Right, so they collect but data. They, well, they do a lot of different things. But for our intents and purposes, the important thing that Commerce does is it has it plays an active role in setting like defensive tariffs. Like if there's like 
if China's dumping steel into the United States and a company, you know, Nucor or someone says, this is unfair, we're bringing a case, commerce plays a role in figuring out what the tariff should be. And so Wilbur Ross is going to have some latitude there to kind of define trade policy. When it comes to negotiating trade deals, there's actually someone else who basically controls that. That's called what's known as the, the, the guy known as the U.S. trade rep. Um, and even though the U.S. trade rep is technically at the Commerce Department, confusingly, they are also a, ca- a cabinet level position. So that person's also going to be really important in all of this. It's I, the reason Ross is so important is because he has some direct levers over trade, but also because he has Trump's ear. Those are the two things you have to remember. And also just because he's, you know, part of the billionaireization of the cabinet. I mean, you know, no one knows exactly how much Mnuchin is worth, but it's a lot and it might even be more than Trump, at least for the time being. Um, you know, Trump, Trump is not is a wealthy man, you know, probably not as wealthy as he says he is, but a wealthy man. Um, Ross is genuinely like monstrously. Yeah, he's got 2.5 billion, according to. So Forbes. What, what's what's his goal? His goal? What do you think, think he's going to really so, go Well, for? he's 79, right? So, like, yeah. I think Die a lot rich. of Die rich. I mean, he's going to do it. Well, I mean, it's interesting. <laughs> Mnuchin um, gave a very revealing interview to Max Abelson in August when Max was asking him, like, why are you doing this? This being the whole Trump campaign thing. Um, and he's like – and he was basically – making a long odds bet and he came out and said it like you know okay this might look really idiotic if and when trump loses but on the off chance that trump wins and i get a position in the administration then no one will ask me that it'll be obvious because it's very easy to turn power into money but it's very hard to turn money into power i've said this over and over again rich people don't become powerful politicians very often. And you see time and time again, they run for office and they lose. Um, This is a way for a rich person like Stephen Mnuchin, who could never in a million years win an election, to get an incredibly powerful job in the government. And that's what, once you have everything that money can buy, all that's left is power that you want. Or live in forever. We've talked about that. And with Wilbur Ross, you know, I, I think he probably sees this as an opportunity to remake to make America great again as far as he's concerned. I mean, this is a guy who if if you take the darkest view, right? He's sort of the worst case combination of like an industrial like an old school industrialist plutocrat and a modern Wall Street plutocrat because he's very much of Wall Street. He literally, you know, Kevin Ruiz had that classic article about him how, you know, Wilbur Ross was for a while the head of a secret Wall Street fraternity, right? He was the grand swipe as they put it. Um so he's like deep in that world, but then he also is this private equity guy who buys industrial companies and, you know, fires people and cuts pensions, but also gets them to make profits. And so, you know, he is very much of this low regulation, low tax, let the free market work, let the free market do its thing, and everything will come up roses. That That is deeply embedded in his worldview, I think. Here's, here's and so, that, I don't understand about this. I'm really like cognitive dissonance, Yeah, which is like, how can someone simultaneously be like free market and also say, like, we're going to raise tariffs? Well, well that, you know, that, so that's the thing. thing. He's not saying that he's going to raise tariffs. So, says, okay, so literally no one except Trump has said that. So right. what Ross is saying is that we will threaten tariffs as a as a bargaining position in order to get people like or like the Chinese government to make concessions that we want. And, and this that's is not something the, that's this is not something crazy. That every administration does. Yes. And in this respect, I mean, I think that Ross honestly is not dissimilar from Mnuchin in that he, to a first approximation, is kind of what you would expect from a Republican government. Like, if you're scared of Trump because he's completely 
outside the bounds of what is normal in U.S. political discourse and U.S. politics, and that he has broken the Republican Party and is completely different. What he's done with these economic posts does not look like he's breaking anything. I feel like any Republican president could have appointed people much like these. Yeah, I think that's I think that's very true. I think what what I find a little bit worrying about Ross is that again, he is at this point the closest thing to a true economic advisor Trump has and his economic thing is just not that sophisticated. Say, say, like, say what's what's the worst thing about his economic thing? I called I mean I called a paper he put together a dog's breakfast of factual errors and just like bad at it? I mean it's like back of the envelope calculations. Him and him and Narar, when they did the infrastructure thing, they tried to claim with a straight face that it would totally be free based on like you know some math it, they did, some arithmetic on standard supply side Republican n- rhetoric. No, I mean it's, but like he is no one better than this. It's like you don't. There's no one who's a really sophisticated thinker about actual economics, and, and maybe there will be eventually. Maybe they'll hire like bring someone on on the Council of Economic Advisors, but it's just like. You've got some markets guys. You've got market guys. That's all you have right now. You have market guys and someone who understands private equity. And that's who's in this administration. So what we're looking at, like taking a step back, is a bunch of like really hardcore like Republicans and who are going to do like cut taxes they're for the rich. They're not Republicans. They're, they're, they're going to. They really are plutocrats. That's the thing. Because like okay, Ross. Plutocrats, yeah. And then we have like Donald Trump who like once a month is going to find some way to brag about saving 800 jobs in some ridiculous deal. Yes. And, so, and we're going to have an administration without economists or and an administration without any real government experience. So that's going to be fascinating, especially among economists who are convinced that they matter and can add value. (laughs) We'll see whether they're actually right on that. So let's move on to the numbers round because I feel there's got to be some good numbers this week. I have a ridiculous number. What's your ridiculous number? Which I'm sharing with all of you. You're welcome in advance. (laughs) 720. And I hope you guys don't have that number too. But it's the number of dollars that you can pay for self-tying sneakers. Oh, from Back to the Future? Um, well, actually, for from now. Nike is now selling the Back to the Future concept of self-tying shoelaces. On I'm, I'm in. I'm sold. And I saw the video, and it looks amazing, slash not worth $720. Well, I mean, if you're Steven Mnuchin. <laughs> That's, uh, right. I mean, like, for Christmas presents for Steven Mnuchin's, 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 for Mnuchin's munchkins? grandchildren. For oh Mnuchin's God, munchkins? Mnuchin's munchkins. Oh, my God. <laughs> So, yeah, okay, so there you go. That's your holiday present this week, or this year, rather, is a pair of $720 Nike sneakers. My number is a little bit of good news, is 1,856,000, which is, and it doesn't sound like good news when I put it this way, but there are 1,856,000 people in this country who have been unemployed for 27 weeks or more. That's the number, that's the long-term unemployment number, and it sounds like a lot of people, and it is a lot of people, but here's the thing. Back in April 2010, that number was 6.8 million. Hmm. So the overwhelming majority of the long-term unemployment problem that we had back in 2010 has now gone away. Is that like that people is, who just like left the workforce? Or yeah, I mean, so, so, some of those people did just leave the workforce. Ma- many now, of but, those yeah. people left the workforce. But, you know, this is a uh, apples to apples um, time series here. Yeah. You know, obviously, you know, 27 weeks is a lot shorter than five years. So it's people who could have been un- made unemployed 28 weeks ago. Yeah. Um, 
it's it's a good it's a really good thing if you look at the chart it's come down much much more than any of the short term unemployment indicators and that's what you want if you're trying to really um work on unemployment the unemployment rate is now 4.6% and that means we have full employment in this country which is a, a good place for america to be um my number is 1.2 million which is how many barrels of oil per day uh, opec has promised to cut by january um it's that been, was going to be my number till I found the, the self-tying your, shoes. Your self-tying <laughs> shoes is better. Uh, but I, I do want to bring this up because, A, um, no one was sure that OPEC could still like get its act together to do this and act like the cartel it's supposed to be. So good job, OPEC. You know, golf clap. Um, but then also, like... Our, I, Earth, my, our Earth thanks you. Yeah. I, well, no, I mean, my theory about this is that it's going to come to not because, you know, oil producers in West Texas are just going to shout yeehaw and start, you know, fracking to their heart's content, especially with the incoming administration. And so it's going to be an interesting experiment to see if OPEC really has any market power or if they're just going to find themselves being balanced on the other end by well, frackers I mean, in the U.S. they do have market power, as you can see by the market price of oil like, in the wake that, of the announcement. Yeah, but sh- that's short term. I mean, over in terms of like long term pricing, like because short term fluctuations aren't really what anyone's worried about. They're worried about you know keeping prices at a certain level for a matter of years, not months. So that's we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Okay, so on which note we will wrap up this edition of Slate Money. Thanks for listening to us. Do subscribe to the show. Press that subscribe button in whatever app you are using to listen to us. Write to us. Our email address, as ever, is slatemoney at slate.com. Many thanks to Verlin Williams, who produced the show this week, and to Steve Lichtai and Andy Bowers, the executive producers. Find all of the panoply podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply and we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.